This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Carl, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well, John. How are you? Good, good, good. Looks like you're relaxing at home today. Yes, yes, like I didn't just say. Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to receive a free MP3 download from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Welcome to Theology on the Go. Glad you could join us today. I'm Jonathan Master, Dean of the School of Divinity at Cairn University and editor of placefortruth.org. And I would urge you to visit placefortruth.org if you have not already or if it's been a little while. There's regular content being put up there and it's intended to be useful in building up the body of Christ. Each week on this podcast, we bring a guest to help bring clarity to a particular theological topic. And this week, I am joined by the Paul Woolley Chair of Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary, pastor of Cornerstone OPC Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania, author of a number of books, including The Creedal Imperative, uh, my friend, Dr. Carl Truman. Carl, thanks for joining me. Great to be here, John. So I want to talk today about confessions and theology. We've been doing a long series on confessions and confessionalism, and specifically we want to focus on formulating our theology and sort of how confessions help play a role in that. So let me just start with that broad question. Uh, as you work through theological issues and, and, and even theological debates, how are confessions, uh, the particular confessions to which you adhere, helpful in, in your engagement? Uh, they're helpful in a number of ways, Jonathan. I mean, one of them, one of the obvious ways is they represent a, a distillation of the wisdom of the past, which is extremely helpful for addressing contemporary debates. You know, Christianity is not reinvented every Sunday. It does have a historical tradition. Uh, and I want to draw on that tradition in order to help me you know, give biblical sound answers to the kind of issues that I face day-to-day, week-by-week. Many of my congregants face day-to-day, week-by-week. So that would be one very important way of doing it. I think a second way would be it's, it's, it's a humbling thing to use a confession, that it is a reminder that I don't have all of the answers. Uh, as I've already, I suppose the first part of my answer would, just a few months ago would be, you know, it's kind of, it's a comfort and it's a source of wisdom, but it's also, it's a humbling thing because it's a reminder that many great Christians have gone before and have wrestled long and hard with the truths of God and have formulated uh, answers that, uh, that I need to draw upon today. And so they relativize me as a human being in my particular point in history. Do you think that creeds are And I think I know the answer to this based on your writings, but I'm wondering if you could sort of expand on your answer. Are creeds necessary and sort of a biblically commanded thing for Christians to engage in in writing? I've actually changed my mind on that. I don't think they're necessary at all these days. Well, there we go. We've broken news here. <laughs> no, no, no. I've not, on the go. I've, I've not gone insane. I was just trying to do to you what Anthony Esselin did to uh, Fox News in that famous clip that's on YouTube. That, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, think, I, I, was, I was just seeing our numbers soar, so, so all right. Yeah. 
I think, uh, yes, creeds are necessary. They're necessary. I think they're biblically mandated. Now, I'd have to say, maybe not the form in which we have them, but the Bible talks about forms of sound words. It talks about trustworthy sayings. It talks about uh, passing on uh, the tradition uh, of, of the gospel. So there are various pointers in the Bible towards having some I would say, verbal way of communicating the truth in a stable form from generation to generation. The church has chosen to do that by creeds and confessions. And I think that that is, uh, that is true to the Bible's teaching and fulfills an important biblical function. I want to talk in a minute about your own confessional tradition as it relates to the Westminster standards. But let me start a little broader than that. You talked earlier about uh, engaging in theological thinking and theological discourse within the framework of the confessional tradition and the way in which it ties you to the past and humbles yeah. you in all kinds of important ways. So, so let me give you a sort of hypothetical. If you found yourself through your study of the Bible, you're preparing to, to preach a text, maybe you're just studying it on your own, and you found yourself drawing biblical conclusions that went against say, the early ecumenical councils and their resultant creeds. How, how would you handle that? Well, if those were ecumenical councils whose theology essentially fed into the Westminster standards, it's the standards I subscribe to, uh, then I am bound by vow as a minister of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church to teach consistent with the Westminster standards because I believe those Westminster standards summarize the teaching of the Bible. If through my studies I come to the conclusion that the Westminster standards do not summarize the teachings of the Bible on a particular point, even contradict the, the Bible on that point, then because I've taken a vow to teach in accordance with those standards, I simply can't get up in my pulpit on a Sunday and start preaching my own personal conviction on a text. Let's say, you know, baptism might be the big one. Let's take an example. I come through my study of the Bible to, to believe that infant baptism is not correct, even though the Westminster Standards uh, clearly teach it, and I'm bound by vow to teach it from the pulpit. What I would have to do then is go to my presbytery, go to the court of my church, we would say, and let them know that my opinion uh, my views on that part of the confession have changed. And the presbytery would then make a decision on whether my change of opinion fundamentally compromised my belief in the system of doctrine outlined uh, in the standards, uh, or whether it was merely a, we might say, a cosmetic change. Maybe I came to disagree with the way a particular thing was worded, but still agreed with the basic concept. That would be a cosmetic change. If the presbytery decided that my change of view was of such a fundamental kind that really it altered the system of doctrine in a very fundamental way, then they would probably withdraw my credentials as a minister and I would no longer be able to minister as a Presbyterian minister. But if it changed my views on infant baptism, I wouldn't want to do that anyway. I wouldn't want to minister as a Presbyterian minister anyway. I'd want to be a Baptist. So what I'm saying here is that confessions are church documents. And when you come as a minister to change your view on a document that you have sworn by solemn vow to uphold, there are ecclesiastical ways of handling that. 
Now, if you're an individual Christian, of course, the stakes are somewhat less high. We have Baptists who are members of our church. They're not required to subscribe to the Westminster Standards to be members of our church. They are required to take a series of vows and and affirm, for example, belief of God in Trinity, uh, Christ is the only way to salvation, that kind of thing. If they decided they could no longer maintain those vows, then they would have to speak to uh, the minister, and we would deal with that in, in a disciplinary way at church level. We would probably dismiss them to a Baptist church or a church where they could maintain their vows. All of this is to say that we need to get beyond the idea as evangelicals that, uh, we, are, you know, that, that we are in control of our faith. Uh, our faith is a public thing. We profess things publicly, and when we come to believe that our public profession that we made in the past does not comport with what's taught in the Bible. There are public corporate ways of handling that. So the structures associated with uh, your church, uh, your session, your denomination are, are in a sense inextricably linked together with the actual confessions themselves. Yes. I think when we talk about confessionalism, we're not just talking about a document. We're talking about a document, we're talking about a, a book of church order, a, 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 a set of rules by which the church is governed, and how those two things connect. There's a big, uh, I, I think a lot of talk these days about confessional evangelicalism, and there's much I appreciate in the confessional evangelical movement, but it's only truly confessional if the confessions connect somehow to ecclesiology, to the, the governance of the local church or of the denomination. As a historian, uh, as someone who teaches church history on a regular basis, uh, has has your uh, church history can, is a very very messy subject in many ways, and 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 everyone you study uh, after the Lord Jesus is a, is a sinner and is flawed. But notwithstanding that, has your study of church history deepened your appreciation for the early creeds and confessions or or has it sort of dented it in some way no it's it's definitely deepened my appreciation i mean for example the well we all know there's been a bit of a storm about uh, what is nicene trinitarianism recently you know the council of constantinople in 381 that that uh, uh affirms what we now call the Nicene Creed. It was actually affirmed at, at, in 381 in Constantinople, not at 325 in Nicaea. Uh, the, the Council of Constantinople, the Creed of Constantinople, I think really does capture a huge amount of, of what the Bible teaches about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A superficial reading of it out of context, you might wonder, well, what does it mean, you know, begotten, not made? There are terms there that are a little bit obscure or open to a variety of interpretations. What's helpful about church history is as you trace the debates from 325 to 381, you realize how this fine tooling of the language both makes sense and is extremely important. So I would say church history has really helped me understand why the church has chosen to formulate things the way she does. So as your appreciation has deepened and as you've participated in in structures and denominations that are specifically creedal, um, I want to ask you about a charge that's often leveled against confessions and and a kind of confessional orthodoxy and that's this that that confessions hamstring your reading and teaching of the bible in other words you really can't come to the bible 
with any sort of openness or honesty because now you've committed yourself to all these extra biblical creeds. I wonder if you could respond to that. Well, first of all, my, I'd refer you to my earlier answer to the question uh, on, on how to deal with creeds and confessions when you, when you feel that the Bible is leading you in a different direction. You know, anybody who affirms a creed or a, a confession as a Protestant is committed. I mean, the, the Westminster Confession itself contains a statement about its own corrigibility. So it doesn't present itself as an infallible and inerrant document. It, it leaves itself open to correction and, and revision. There are just appropriate ways of doing that. To the more broader hermeneutical point, I would say we're kidding ourselves if we believe that we come to the, conf- uh, the Bible as, as blank sheets. If we just read the Bible, everybody has a creed or confession. Everybody has a set of assumptions uh, a, a, vo- a set of vocabulary, a set of concepts that they bring to the Bible when they read it. And frankly, I'd rather have my assumptions, concepts, and language shaped as much as possible by the language that the church has developed over the centuries to make sense of the Bible than I would by, you know, my own invention, if you like, or, or simply trusting the wisdom of, of my pastor or the one or two Christian friends I have. That's a that's a really helpful response, and it ties in with what you said earlier about these things giving us a degree of humility and yeah. and, the, and the 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 real care with which they were written. All right, last question. I'm going to recommend to our listeners uh, very very strongly that they read your book, The Creedal Imperative. But now that I've gotten that out of the way and and kind of gotten you off the hook, what books or resources would you recommend for someone who's new to creeds in general maybe they're they're not even aware of any of these historic creeds you've mentioned or or yeah. this tradition is is very unfamiliar yeah well i would recommend getting hold of some creeds and confessions you can download I think pretty much all of the great creeds and confessions for free off numerous websites. So just go and uh, search online, look for the Nicene Creed, look for the Creed of Chalcedon. Uh, You'll find them online. Get hold of them and read them, the Westminster Confession. Maybe if you're looking for a good Protestant one, start with the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a wonderfully pastorally toned uh, catechism. So I would certainly recommend go that way. And in terms of reading them, I would, I would say what you really need to do is get a good grasp of or a decent grasp of the framework of church history. So I would suggest maybe Nick Needham's now four, just coming out with the fourth volume, four volumes, uh, 2,000 words of uh, years of Christ's power. Don't be put off by the fact it's four volumes. It's very easy read. Uh, Robert Wilkin, The First Thousand Years would be another one I'd look at for early church stuff. Get hold of some good church history books and um, use them to give you a framework for understanding why these creeds and confessions were formulated the way they were at the time they were. Yeah, and if I can add to that, those two books um, I've recommended and given them to a number of people, uh, non-specialists, and and everyone has has loved them. So they're, those are accessible books. They're, the, the Needham one is four volumes, but... It's easy to read the the yeah. uh, and the Wilkin one is just is just outstanding as well. Yeah, it's one of, one of my favorite books. Robert Wilkins did delightful writer, delightful writer. Well, Carl, thanks for this delightful interview. Uh, it's good to talk with you always, and thanks for taking time to uh, come onto the show. You've been listening to Theology on the Go a podcast of placefortruth.org. 
Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.